Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. Welcome to another Pro Audio Suite. Um, we have, of course, George Whittam in Los Angeles. Hello, everybody. Sorry I've been missing for a while. That's all right. We're, we have a family business to get on with, and that's a good thing. Robbo. G'day. G'day, mate. Um, Robert in Chicago is not here this week because um, he's having some family time with he's his daughter, which is a lovely thing. That's right. uh, but we do have a guest for the show this week, and uh, we're going to be talking about DAWs and one of the... Uh, premium DAW builders in the world, I might add, is Vin Curigliano. And uh, he's got a company called Avum Technology, which is based in Melbourne, Australia, um, but works globally. G'day and happy birthday, Vin. Yes, it is my birthday today. Yeah, happy 21st there. Yeah, it is my 21st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 21st anniversary of 30th? <laughs> 21st anniversary of my 30th. Oh, actually, yeah. 34th. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're giving it away now. Um, I but it, anyway, 55's the new black. Don't worry about it. That's right. Um, yeah. Now, give us a bit of background because I've known you for obviously quite a few years now and I use one of your machines. But um, how did you get into building DAWs? Uh, I kind of fell into it, actually. I, I'm a, a keyboard player by a musical trade. And um, being involved with the whole MIDI explosion uh, evolution through the 80s led me to these little computers called Ataris back in the day. Uh, so late 80s was the Atari. The Atari had a built-in MIDI interface and um, the, the precursors of a lot of the software that's available now as the DAWs were purely MIDI sequences. So things like Q, uh, Steinberg Cubase was my primary software back in the day. And the MIDI was that tight on that little Atari because it was an integral part of the firmware and the hardware of the machine and the operating system. That replaced, you know, the old physical uh, sequences like MC500s or whatever else was the, uh, popular during the day. Um, so that was my first introduction into computing and music together. And as that evolved, um, you know, we got to about the middle 90s and things were starting to move progressively towards being able to record you know, stereo tracks of audio and what have you, and I had to get off the Atari. So when was this, Finn? What, what, what year? Do you, do you remember? Uh, I remember the year. It was 1995, and Windows 95 had just come out, and I had a certain amount of money to spend. It was either a Windows machine or a uh, the Mac, and they were about 7K, and um, the Windows machine was about 3.5K. Saved myself some dollars um, and to see if I can get this Windows machine to work. And that started the journey, obviously, because, um, you know, everyone was on Mac. Uh, everyone had their arms crossed saying to me, well, you know, what are you doing on Windows? Uh, you can't get that to work as, a, as an audio production machine. And um, here I am 
23 years later. <laughs> so who, who else in the world was doing what you were doing at that time? Back then there might have been, you know, there was a whole flurry of people that jumped in and, and disappeared very quickly. But the, for those of us that have held on for all of these years, there's um, well, actually one of them just uh, uh, closed recently, which I'm not going to name because he still hasn't uh, publicly announced it, but he's been running for as long as what I have and he's gone. Um, I, I would say there's less than five that I would consider really good at what they do and that's worldwide. Um, wow. So what about all the people that were using Macs? I mean, just about every studio you walked into had a G4 or whatever it was back then. Traditionally, uh, people that are more Mac-focused would always have the perception that Windows machines were just a, a minefield because of the, the, you know, the huge variations of hardware configurations, and it's not really the case, especially with, uh, you know, you've got an Intel and an AMD. There's, it's like the Cola Wars, you know. You've got uh, two competing... Uh, main chip manufacturers. So at any given time of product development, you've got a couple of chipsets and a couple of CPUs. Now, I, I choose to stick with Intel for various reasons. I, I don't uh, dabble with the, the AMD side of things. And even when they did have the so-called performance lead back in the early 2000s, they, they didn't deliver a package in the sense that Yes, the CPUs might have been a little bit faster, but the chipsets weren't as compatible. So there was far greater compatibility and consistency with the Intel platform. So that's that's what I've stuck with. Um, and so like any given time, there might be, you know, two chipsets that you're dealing with in a CPU architecture. And, you know, you could choose a couple of different motherboards, um, do your R&D, sign off on it, then stick to that configuration, and you'd have something as consistent as anything that Apple could provide. But you could, you know, you can hand select each component and you can build in your reliability and your consistency um, and they've proved very, very reliable. And so this is why I'm still around 17 years after going out on my own. I thought Mac changed their chips at some point, and I can't remember what happened. When Apple went to Intel, I think it was around 2006, and that was quite a dramatic shift because all of a sudden the veil dropped. You know, uh, Apple was always trying to portray themselves as something completely different from the uh, Intel space, and then all of a sudden they're using it so they had to backpedal a lot, uh, and and it was a it levelled the playing field a lot because all of a sudden we're we're really dealing with very close to identical base systems. The only difference was the operating system, and that's what came about there was that as soon as people went to Intel, they realised well maybe we can get OS X running on normal PCs, and that kind of opened up a few doors to um, uh, people like to call them hackintoshes like ten. The Hackintosh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, when I started getting into that, there was still the typical Mac versus PC arguments flying all over the place, especially on places like Gear Sluts. And Mac people would have no problem paying a, a premium for their Mac systems because they were beautifully made, well-engineered. Everything was at a level where you knew exactly what you got, where the PC could be just cobbled together with the lowest common denominator components. And, of course, that's not going to be the same. So once you started comparing apples to apples instead of apples to pears, so to speak, uh, it, it became, you know, the, level, the playing field was very, very level as far as uh, hardware uh, performance. It's so funny because right uh, 2006 is when I jumped to, to jumped Mac. Jumped to Mac, yeah. I, I, yeah, that's when I actually made that transition. So, so what, was your, what was your experience on the Windows machines prior to that? Well, I built many mm-hmm. of them myself. Yep. And... Um, I had varying degrees of success, 
But the reason that I made the transition was because I moved to LA. I was doing computer support for voiceover actors and the vast majority of them were on Mac. And I was totally un, you know, just uninformed. And I knew I had to get a Mac. So I had a Mac and a Windows laptop running together for for a long time until I just decided I was becoming more and more comfortable in the Mac OS environment. And I just really transitioned my world over. But my needs are different because I'm not an engineer and I don't produce. So I don't need massive high track count and extreme low latency and gobs of RAM. For what I do, I just need something that I can understand and operate easily and manage. And then I, you know, the vast majority of my clients, again, are on the Mac. So I knew I had to be very Mac centric. And look, it does come down to familiarity. And um, I, I, you won't hear me. Get, even though I get into these Mac versus PC debates and, and people will always try and drag me in, and instead of getting into this typical narrative of one versus the other, what I decided to do, and which was kind of pretty taboo when I did it, but I've, I've got a blog site that's called Doorbench, D-A-W-Bench, doorbench.com. And so this was around that 2004, 2005 era. Now, apart from the whole Mac versus PC thing, I was embroiled in the middle of an Intel versus AMD thing. And if, if, you th- if you think Mac versus PC fanboys are rabid, the AMD guys are on an absolute another level, you know. And um, so what was happening back around that 2004, 2005, and you probably remember this, George, if you've been a PC guy, um, AMD were the secondary chip. They'd come up with something that was a little bit better in performance than the Intel, but their chipsets, again, was that whole compatibility problem thing. But... What they did is they started seeding some of the systems to some high-profile engineers in the US uh, for free. Then these guys would go onto the forums, whether it was the Steinberg Forum or Gearsluts and everyone else, and they were were basically shills. And they'd get on there and they would just sit there and start pushing these AMD systems and the better performance, and and they were basing them on these audio uh, benchmarks uh, based within a DAW, but they were reading the performance meter, and I'm sitting there looking at that going, well, literally that's about as useless as tits on a bull because it doesn't show us anything and it's not actually a performance metric at all because uh, what would happen is that you'd say, okay, here's this test session that you can run and it's got 40 tracks of audio and 120 plugins or whatever else. And they'd they'd read the Asia performance meter. Now, the Asia performance meter is a combination of the driver performance within the the specific to the card and um, the resources that are available. Uh, so say let's say for example, um, you know, one was reading fifty percent, the other one was reading thirty-five percent. So they'd say, hey, that's fifteen percent better. But it's not. It's again, they weren't kind of figuring out that the metric was not really representative of anything, and you couldn't really scale it correctly. So what I did, I created um, some benchmarks, and they're still. They're now they pretty come up, pretty much became the pseudo industry standard, where I have a a session. I build a session up in Cubase. I build them up in all different DAWs now, and. I would apply an incremental and progressive load just by flicking plugins on in real time. You would get an exact breakpoint of where the session the session collapsed instead of just reading the meter. And what we found was that where these sessions were, you know, say reading 50% CPU load, that was all well and good. But what it wasn't showing you was that the AMD machines were absolutely collapsing at about a 65-70% load where the Intels would actually scale all the way up to 95 to close to 100%. And it's, it's got to the point now where the software can't keep up with the hardware, uh, where before the hardware, it was the opposite. Um, 
and that's that's one of the major shifts that's happened probably over the last four or five years. You know, the software now we we're we're up to eighteen physical cores on the Intel machines. AMD have just announced something like a thirty-two core, sixty-four logical core processor this week, which I'm kind of chuckling about because no software application can thread more than 32 threads. That's it's kind of pointless, but it's uh, pretty impressive, you know. Do you have anyone with PCs at all, George? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they tend to be a little bit more, for lack of a better word, self-reliant. Either that or either that, or they're just totally new to the business completely and they're just using what they know. And so they have a, you know, they have a laptop, a Windows laptop or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're using what they've got. But... Um, the overwhelming majority is on Mac, but I do have to stay up to speed with Windows stuff because I have a lot of clients who are using Audition 3.0, Audition 1.5, which is basically Cool Edit, SoundForge. You know, they're using DAWs and editors that are Windows-based systems. So I run Windows on a VMware on my Mac Mini and my MacBook Air, and I can run you know those systems without without a hiccup, no problem at all. Um, from my Macs and be in lockstep with what they're doing. So if they're on SoundForge 9, I'll, I'll be running SoundForge 9 on Windows. Or if they're on Audition 3, then I'm on Audition 3 on Windows. So it's not really been an issue. And it's amazing what computers with enough RAM and an SSD can do. And like my 2011 Mac Mini, I've done webinars where I'm showing people the different DAWs that are available, or DAWs. And I'll have five or six of them open all simultaneously. And I'll just do full screen swaps, you know, or a swipe with four fingers across my trackpad. And now you're looking at uh, Audition. Now you're looking at Pro Tools. Mm. Now you're looking at mm. Twisted Wave. Now you're looking at Audacity, you know, and, and I can have them all running simultaneously and the computer has no problem. So it's really incredible what the capabilities are now of a modern PC, you know, or Mac in this case. Bootcamp was a bit of a game changer for Mac though, wasn't it? I mean, there was a lot of users who didn't use Mac because they were afraid of the interface. And then all of a sudden when you could load Windows onto a Mac frame, that sort of changed the game a little bit, didn't it? I guess for gamers um, and maybe for really high level um, musicians that have to run, you know, have to have every last ounce of the computer's power Mm. Mm. available to them. Mm. That really came into play, but... Again, for my world where I, I'm not a superpower user of the machine unless I'm editing video, um, you know, the, the, the VMware way of doing things, for me, the convenience trumps the, the power any day. Being yeah. able to just launch VMware and resume a suspended... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Windows 7 session and go back to work is great. And I'm not moving beyond Windows 7 for the foreseeable future. Yes. <laughs> um. <laughs> a boot camp was actually a response from Apple to the OS X86. Um, it was very quickly uh, realized that we could run OS X on, on straight machines, uh, and especially those that were using uh, identical chipsets that the Mac Pros were based on at the time. 
And that's what my, uh, we'll call it the OSX86 machine that I did all of the comparative uh, benchmarking on was based on. And uh, when that happened, Apple just turned around and went, okay, hang on, the the horse has bolted. And um, they very, very quickly released boot camp, which was which was a smart move on their part because um, but at the same time they also locked down OSX uh, via their UEFI um, so that you couldn't just install it directly onto an open BIOS on uh, like a normal PC and it, it really it took a tiny little script um, and this is what I, all a hackintosh is is essentially, there's a tiny little script in the boot sector that tricks it into thinking that the system has a, uh, a Mac official UEFI. And once it gets past that little boot sector, bang, it goes in. And if the machines are close to uh, identical uh, to the, the official Mac hardware, they run superbly. Um, and that's what a lot of people have found. And, uh, and they continue using them. I've got to be very careful because I, uh, I can't, Sit there and promote it because I don't I don't do the systems. I only did it uh, personally just to do some comparative testing. Um, and the inter- interesting thing for me was that when I actually did that, and I did run start running some um, cross platform performance testing with the various DAWs. The first thing that I needed to do was confirm that my OSX implementation on on the OSX eighty six machine was actually performing up to par. Uh, you know, similar or similar or up, you know, up to par to a, a uh, an official Mac Pro, and so I ran all these comparative benchmarks, and there was this huge variance. And when I say there was a huge variance, it was massive, especially at the lower latencies. So the first thing I needed to do was to confirm that my OS X eighty six machine was not hosed, the performance wasn't hosed. So I sent all of the results to a, a colleague of mine, a close friend in uh, Norway, in Europe, who was quite knowledgeable in cross-platform performance, and we were both very prominent in the Steinberg community at the time. So I sent him the results without giving him my results. I've said, can you run these specific benchmarks on your machine? Now, my machine was the first of the i7s. It's just a quad-core, 2.6 gigahertz, and his Mac Pro was not a single. It was actually a dual quad-core. So we had a dual quad-core Mac Pro, the clock speed was a little bit down, I think 2.23 or 2.33, uh, but he had essentially double the, the number of cores, uh, so double the number of threads, and he ran the results, sent me back the results, and I was expecting them to be proportionally far better than mine. Instead, what we found was that, you know, a hacked standard Windows machine uh, running uh, OS X giving almost double the performance, especially at the low latencies. And what And what we discovered was that there was some uh, clocking issues with the official hardware where it wasn't actually sustaining a steady clock speed and it was ramping up and down. This is uh, due to what they call EIST or speed stepping. And there was some weird bug in the UEFI platform where it was not maintaining a steady clock speed. So you couldn't see this on normal Mac peripherals. Everything was looking absolutely hunky-dory. What we needed to do, we needed to go deeper down into some um, troubleshooting uh, applications and we were finding that the clock speed was ramping up and down like a saw wave and that was impacting the performance to an enormous degree. Now, the Mac community were totally oblivious to it. 
because they just crossed their arms going, we don't know what the hell you're talking about because they didn't have a direct comparative against, you know, an open a BIOS platform machine. So if you go read my reports on DoorBench, I had to do about six of them because as soon as this became public, the pushback was enormous. No one wanted to accept that uh, that Apple was actually essentially hobbling their official hardware. To what end? Um, Why would they do that? What's the motivation? There was no motivation there, George. I don't even think they realised. I mean, this this was something that, that we we hit the ball out of the park. I mean, I uh, when I first saw those results, I, I sat me flat on my ass. I'm like, here I was thinking that my OS X implementation was actually screwed. When the results came back that I had, you know, the Mac Pro with twice the processing power, even performing worse, then that was. You know, it was, uh, you know, our minds were blown. We're thinking, okay, we've got to dig a little bit deeper. We had to get into, like, you know, Unix kernel-type level stuff to figure out what the hell was going on with the clock wow. speeds. And, um, and you know, interestingly, it wasn't a thermal thing. It was just a, it could not sustain a steady clock. So it was ramping up and down between whatever the base speed step was, you know, which, is, which clocks the, the CPUs down if you're on battery or whatever else. Right or if, under low usage, mm-hmm. and then the top clock speed. So it was going up and down, up and down, and I mean, without any application to be able to measure that, the only way that we were actually perceiving it was in the um, in the in the performance variable that we we were measuring. Um, you know, I did it on Pro Tools, I did it on Studio One, I did it on Reaper. So anything was pretty much cross-platform that I could get my hands on. I did. I did the comparative performance on, and in every instance, the Windows machine was still outperforming the OS X machine. So, um, so all of a sudden, we're we're kind of accomplishing this stuff in native on Windows, and that got the attention of a lot of people. Um, now, with the Mac thing, that it did get it did get fixed. It did get fixed. That was my next uh, question. Did it, did it get fixed? <laughs> yes, it it did. It did get fixed. It was really late in the Mac. Pro lifecycle, and it was. Um, remember the last of the the Mac Pro che- uh, the cheese graders, the single hexacores big, that yeah yeah not the jewels, but the single hexacore. If people would be almost selling a kidney to get a hold of those, they are glorious machines. And yes, they did fix it. So if you again, if you read through my reports, I did ten point five, ten point six, and it was XP, and then it was Windows Seven. So it was just that whole transition around that two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. And the, the other thing that we discovered with the whole Windows versus OS X um, comparative performance was that where the Windows machines run on ASIO, uh, which is a Steinberg protocol, uh, extremely... A-S-I-O. Yep, ASIO, yep. Uh, extremely uh, efficient, low-latency protocol still to this day. You know, they, uh, no one is really using the native Windows low-latency stuff because ASIO hasn't been surpassed. And, where, and Core Audio... Was the core was the the standard Apple OS X low latency driver, which is very very good, but it can't match Asia. And uh, so again, we have to get into the investigation and try and dig out why is the Windows machine so much better at low latency? Because I mean, Windows is not a real time operating system in any way, shape, or form. So it was almost a happy accident, you know. Uh, huh. And so uh, I, the people that are doing lots of virtual instruments, the really hardcore ones. Uh, Probably favoring Windows yeah. systems? Yeah, have been for many years, George, have been. So this is yeah. probably an area that you don't see a lot of, but a lot of the 
a lot of the uh, orchestral no. uh, composers. I mean, look, there's, there's, there's some of them still on Mac, obviously. You know, they're using Logic, and but um, they'll also have an array of um, slave machines. Digital performer. Yeah, and but they'll have a um, array of uh, slave machines uh, doing a whole stack of the orchestral stuff as well. Yeah, I did install some acoustics in a, in a musician's studio, which is very rare for me. Mostly it's voiceover, but... And that gentleman, this is, I don't know, gosh, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. He may have had a PC called a Carillon or something like that. Carillon, Car- uh, yes, Carillon. And he, he swore by that. He was like, he was a jingle composer, film composer, used a lot of virtual instruments, multi-instrumentalist, obviously very talented. Yep. He did a lot of drum programming, and that was his machine. He said, oh, this blows anything from the Apple world away. And yep. now I can see yep. why. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Carillon was, they were the first professional PC DAW company that had the resources to, they created their own case, and um, then they had all of these uh, very uh, ultra-quiet components, uh, but that that was really the first branded uh, specialist PC DAW, Uh, and like I said, they'd manufactured their own specialist cases and stuff, and um, Mm. uh, they came and, they came and went. Um, you know, with, with what happened with Carillon is that they, they had that proprietary case, which was awesome, but they built thousands of them, but they built them at a time that was, you know, the thermal integrity of that case was for the uh, architecture of that time. So right. those cases became ovens, and, um, and because they had that proprietary case, that's the only case they could use, they were kind of caught, and... Um, then what they would do, what they did was they they uh, franchised the la- the brand out. Then the franchisees were actually building these systems, and I would just hazard to guess that the quality control was not where it should have been, and it just dropped off, and eventually it just kind of disappeared. And um, but uh, yes, the Carillons were pretty much the guys that put the specialist PC DAW on the map, so I will give them credit for that. Interesting. But now we should talk about the hot topic, which is uh, what Windows are doing with Windows 10. Windows was always something that was far more manageable and customizable. Um, and, and so that was you know, the positive for us. And, and we could deploy them exactly as we needed. We could lock them down and send them out. And the systems just worked. Um, things started shifting you had XP, then then when Vista came out, that was an absolute disaster. I don't know if anyone can remember Vista, but that that was oh yes, that, that was yeah. good old Vista. <laughs> that that was an absolute disaster, <laughs> and at the same time, where ten point five was getting very very bloated as well. OS was ten point five, um, and uh, you know we were going Tiger Leopard, and and I was making jokes saying, "What's the next one, Garfield?" Because it was just getting so fat. <laughs> <laughs> it was getting so fat and bloated. But at exactly the same time, um, the Microsoft uh, realised, look, we've got to we've got to start getting back to the basics of you know, and uh, we're going to streamline this kernel and we're going to improve the performance of it. And granted, Apple did exactly the same with OS X ten point six, and that's uh, Snow Leopard. I think it's Snow Leopard. Uh, Windows seven and OS X ten point six to me are the probably the best versions of each operating system for DAW is that pretty much have ever existed. And so we had the disaster of Windows 8. That just didn't work. It was an absolute disaster. So I've, I've kind of been a little bit at, at odds with Microsoft since the Windows 8 
uh, implementation. Um, but, you know, they realised very, very quickly that you can't polish a turd, you know. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you polish it, it's still good. it might be shiny, but it's still a turd. So they, <laughs> so they, um, they went, okay, we'd... We uh, need to go back to the drawing board again. And uh, so Windows 10 was supposed to be a return. And all of us in the, the, the professional Windows community just thought it's got to go back to something more akin to Windows 7. And that's what the premise was originally was. It was supposed to be, okay, we're going to, we've listened to you, you don't like the GUI and you don't like the tiles and we're going to go back to more of a Windows 7. And uh, in in the meantime, we've got, a change of CEO at Microsoft between Steve Barmer and um, the new fellow, uh, Nadella. He's almost kind of like a wannabe Steve Jobs. You know, he's very charismatic, but he's not interested in Windows as a performance platform. He's more into the cloud. I call it the cloud circus because that's pretty much what it's become. It's become everything is so focused on delivering everything as a service to the cloud. So... Um, even well, to any the, more that Apple is interested in making Mac OS a performance. Yeah, platform. well, I, no, neither, neither of them. They're no, no, no. I, I mean, well, we can get to the OS X <laughs> side of it as well. But I mean, with, with the Windows side of stuff, we always had a very uh, solid, streamlined, performance orientated platform that we could build our solutions on. Um, OS X, unfortunately, it, it's more like a walled garden because this is this is what you get. And if you don't like it, too bad. Where Windows, especially because of the enterprise level integration, they really couldn't do that. You know, I mean, they could have, they could do it at the like home and and whatever else. But once once we started talking about the pro, so there's no OS X home, OS X pro, OS X enterprise. I mean, there was an OS X server back in the day, but that that didn't really last that long. So there's you right. got one version of OS X, uh, you know, one size fits all. That's it. With Windows, it was different. So um, we didn't really care. When I say we, the greater community of um, uh, IT professionals and, and integrators, we didn't really care what they did at home. You know, they could do whatever they want. They could sit there and metadata mine these people. I call it the sheeple majority. I couldn't care less what they did there because it didn't really affect us. What happened at 10, though, is that the original premise of going back to the Windows 7 model got thrown out the water, basically being an asset to deliver cloud services. So everything is big. A web terminal. Yeah. <laughs> Just a terminal yes. access yes. to the web. Correct. So Windows 10 didn't really do anything except up the ante. So instead of reversing what they did with Windows 8, they actually upped the ante with that whole Windows Store and the whole apps. Um, but then there's all these dependencies in the background with these little small little applications as well. And, you know... Again, this is a this is a kind of touchy subject of the, the level of telemetry that's always been constantly getting fed back, and but it is constantly talking. Um, but the biggest problem with Windows 10 is that they've enforced uh, these automatic upgrades. Um, now, again, for the home user, sheep or majority, I could couldn't care less. But when we are trying to implement a Windows 10 solution. We can't have it automatically just sit there dialing in and doing security updates or, for, or you know, or, uh, or driver updates. It just can't, we can't allow it to do that, especially on the mission-critical machines, because it does shift the dots and it will, and they do, it does, and will break things. So we have to try and manage how to get these automatic updates uh, under control. So how did you do it? 
I did about 18 months of R&D before I actually deployed my first Windows 10 machine. And that is the longest R&D I've done on any operating system. I mean, Windows 7, my R&D was a week, you know, uh, and it was hit the ground running. Uh, Windows 10, eight, 10, almost a year in, in the beta uh, stage. And I just kept breaking this thing, you know, doing the most basic things. And I'm like, how the hell am I going to deploy, deploy this thing if I just touch you know, some minor adjustment and I'm breaking things like start menus and everything else. Uh, but I couldn't move forward because I'm going, well, it might be an annoyance, but it's it, it'll break a mission-critical system in a heartbeat if we can't get to the start menu. So I kept putting off the Windows 10 deployment. One thing that they removed uh, in, in the earlier version of Windows, and George, you'd probably remember this as well back in the day, is that in the update menu, you had an option to say never check for updates. You, you took response. It's a very important checkbox. It yeah. is. Now, you took responsibility, and I mean, we are adults, we're not idiots, you know, we're taking responsibility and accountability for our own deployments, so you never check for updates, and you would check for the updates if and when. If it ain't broken, don't fix, you know. Um, And also prior to Windows 10, any of those updates, you had a checkbox, so you can defer them, but sooner or later, that thing's going to flood onto your system. So the first argument was, well, how dare you? say that you're going to update our hardware drivers. We've just configured this mission-critical machine. You're going to sit there and start changing graphics drivers, chipset drivers, or whatever else, network drivers. No, the system is locked down. It's working. I don't want you to touch them. But the automatic update regiment was something that I had to, I had to stop because it, I just couldn't deploy with it going. And um, there's a, a lower-level administrative area called a Group Policy Editor. Now, in the Group Policy Editor back in the earlier versions of Windows, and I'm actually going <laughs> to—I'm actually giving you some IP that I haven't shared with anyone. Um, in the Auto Update menu, um, there were some options uh, numbered one to five. The crucial one was one: never check for updates. Now, mysteriously, in Windows 10, that disappeared. Right, so they didn't want you to say never check for updates. Um, what we discovered, when I say we, myself and a few other people uh, stumbled on it, is that if you actually disabled the setting completely, took a screenshot, sent it to my <laughs> Microsoft uh, liaison, he thought I'd Photoshopped it at first. He said, how the hell did you do that? I'm going, well, I'm not going to tell you. Because if I tell you and they break it, I'm going to blame, yeah, I'm going to blame you. So, I, and, and look, I, it, with all due respect to, to, to my mate there, and I won't go name him because it's not fair, but... Uh, um, break it. <laughs> <laughs> they did break it. Right. He had nothing to do with it because it became a little bit more public knowledge. But that's when my battle with Microsoft really kind of upped the ante a bit with Windows 10 because all of a sudden um, they purposely targeted that setting in the group policy editor, which, I mean, you got to think, let's think about it, George. And Oh, sorry, George and, and uh, Robbo and Andrew. What is the percentage of the global Windows user base that that would be affecting. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, I mean, the only people that really knew about it were people like myself and some IT managers, people that are kind of managing you know, larger IT deployments that have to control the updates in these mission-critical systems. I mean, what's the percentage? It wouldn't even be a 1%. But they purposely no. targeted us, and I say us as a collective, and took that away. So they broke that, and so we couldn't get this, you know, never check for updates. So once we went to that new version where they took the group policy, at every revision after that, they're taking even more and more settings away from the uh, control from the group policy. And I just don't understand it. I mean, it, it is purposely targeting a very small sector of people that are just trying to manage their own machines. Um, they even do things like um, Cortana. Now, I'm not sure if you know what Cortana It's kind of similar. You know, it's like Siri, uh, which is the right. uh, integrated search for Windows 10. One of the choices that you had, and it was selectable, it wasn't no hacking required. In the earlier versions of Windows 10, you would say, would you like your internal search string to be shared from the internet. Anyone, you know, could find their ass in, in a, in a well-lit room would go right-click, bang, no, I don't want the search to be shared on the web. Uh, they took that facility away because everyone was disabling it and they weren't getting the metadata that they were probably requiring for whatever reason. I know over the years on the Mac side, there's always been little third-party apps that could get under the hood a little bit. One of them was called Onyx. Yep. And it wasn't doing anything too hacky, I guess. Yep. But it was I guess it was doing things that if you know how to use command line, you could you could change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was it was a GUI. Yep. A user interface for changing things that normally you can only do in the command line. Yeah, and that that's what they isn't, isn't there equivalence for Windows? Yes, of course. Of course. And I've been using them for years. And on Windows ten, what one of the premises of Windows ten was that you don't need to tweak this anymore. You know, tweaks are going to probably be detrimental. Well, there's not a consensus across the Windows DAW users as well. If you go to GearSlots, the, the whole Windows 10 experience thread, just look, it turned into a clusterfuck, seriously. And I apologise for swearing, but that's pretty much the only way for me to, de- uh, to describe it because you've got people would post their experience and if anything was construed as negative, we had a, a, a couple of guys on there that was... All of a sudden, I don't know, maybe they had shares in Microsoft. I don't understand <laughs> what their motivation was, but they'd just jump on anyone that would, would post anything that was for even vaguely construed as negative. And, you know, they'd cross their arms and go, oh, work and fine, work and as design. That's their whole mantra. But it wasn't, you know, because those guys would be sitting there navigating their own little uh, minefields when certain things were breaking with upgrades. But, of course... You know, that gets pushed under the carpet and they just keep sitting there and pounding on people that would dare say anything negative. I know people like that on the Mac Um, side who are like, I always install the updates. I always install the upgrades. They always work. Why would you not do that? I'm like, really? (laughs) Look, one thing that I've learned on the forum is, you know, we'll call it netiquette. And where 
I'm not overly abusive, but I'm very assertive. And, you know, I can get, I've got myself in trouble over, over the years where I actually got banned for, what was the term? I was diagonally abusing people. I was never directly, I was diagonally abusing people, <laughs> which seems like we're going, what the fuck is diagonally abusing someone? And so it was basically being assertive and using sarcasm. Now, there's various people in Europe that they don't get the sarcasm, especially German, Austrian, you know, these guys, they don't know what the, what the fuck Aussie sarcasm is. So they just saw me as being, I don't know, abusive. Kind of, but not directly. So I got banned for, you know, diagonally abusing someone. There's probably an app that will um, speak in diagonalese very soon. But uh, talking of apps, do you actually use any? Yes, I do use them. Um, and for all of the guys that are defending that, oh, you know, there's not much going on in the background. I mean, one of the applets that I use has a, um, a privacy uh, a, um, pane. You know, there's a, there's a tab, privacy pane. And there's probably 15 levels of telemetry that you have to disable whether it's advertising IDs and all of this other stuff that it's reporting back. So 15 levels of telemetry just in the one tab and there's, there's 10, 15 tabs in, in this applet to go through and, and basically silence these. Um, there's also another applet that's simply called Shut Up 10. So I run these two, these two applets, Shut Up 10, and there's another one um, that's called Ultimate Windows Tweaker. Now, I don't mind sharing that now because it's basically the ship has almost sailed for me. I've got one foot out the door almost. You know, um, I've said to a lot of my colleagues, I've gone, you know, I want to exit the zoo because I've got to the point now where it feels like I'm playing whack-a-mole with, with Microsoft at every update revision and um, I'm getting tired of it. And uh, so I, I deploy systems at the moment which are earlier revisions of Windows 10. They are completely locked down. They're bordering on end of life uh, as far as uh, in, I call insecurity updates. And so I've, I've got to read my clients the right act and saying these systems, you have to you have to treat them as embedded systems, as simply as that, because um, I can't guarantee that if we do run an update, this thing is not going to hose your performance. I was curious about the interface of choice for external peripherals. So on Windows or on Mac side, of course, the state of the art is Thunderbolt 3. Mm-hmm. Was that the way people on the PC Windows side are going to achieve low latencies? Or is that considered, is it just too new? Is it not necessary? No, no, no. What, no. what people are using? Well, I mean, Th- Thunderbolt is essentially uh, PCIe. It's all it is. It's external PCIe by default. External PCIe with some other junk baked into it. Well, it's not junk. It's just, it's just it's, it's, the, it's an external PCIe um, protocol, uh, interconnect. It's an interconnect that's directly into the PCIe by 4 bus. That's all it is. Um, it, it's also linking directly into uh, PCIe 16 for the for the uh, for the DisplayPort graphics side of stuff. But for the audio application, it, it's essentially PCIe. That, that's that's what it is. Um, and one of the other things that I've done with uh, Doorbench is shared a lot of my internal IP on uh, low latency performance as far as audio interfaces. So I've got this huge database that I've collected over the last seven or eight years, and I share it publicly. And there's this huge ongoing thread of gear slots that's now, so it's actually pinned. Um, and there's thousands of posts on there. And um, it, like what I did with the Mac versus PC comparative performance thing, I've gone and stuck my foot in it by saying, well, what's going on with these audio interfaces in regards to what is the actual reported latency? 
what is the actual delivered latency and what is the efficiency at those respective latencies. So again, using those benchmarks that I developed, I, I created a, a procedure where I can comparatively compare each interface and then I graph it all up and I've, I've done a rating type of system and it's huge and I've got most, if not all, audio interface manufacturers watching that thread very, very closely. I get the manufacturers sending me uh, interfaces to test and report back. Um, I had a good friend, Andrew Jerram, uh, in uh, Tasmania, uh, who's a, a software developer, develop a little utility called an R RTL utility, which uh, stands for Round Trip Latency Utility, which uh, allows anyone to very quickly uh, test the exact round trip latency via through the driver and through the A to D and D to A. You know, not all USB interfaces are created equal, not all Thunderbolt interfaces are created equal, not all PCIe uh, are created equal. So just going Thunderbolt isn't going to guarantee you, uh, you know, the immediate uh, better performance. Um, and some of the companies there, I really don't want to name them, but there's, there's some that, you know, their Thunderbolt implementation was not very good at all to the point where, their thunder their line of thunderbolt interfaces that they initially rolled out and they've they've now released a USB two version of it. <laughs> and 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 the USB two version actually performs better than their Thunderbolt version. Um, where there's other companies and I'll, I don't mind naming the ones that are actually performing really well. Um, Personas uh, the, the Personas Quantum is a phenomenal interface in regards to uh, low latency performance and and they had a really tough time with their earlier USB 3 interface and um, they acknowledged that they had a problem and they came back and hit the ball out of the park with a quantum. That's fantastic. Um, companies like RME who do all their own internal R&D, do all their uh, IP, do all of their driver development, their firmware development. Um, so none of the RME interfaces actually have a controller. It's all done by the FPGA DSP. So they can write the protocol into the FPGA. Um, and again, you know, RME are a company that pretty much set the benchmark that everyone else has to try and reach. Yeah. And that's been the case. That's been the case for you know well over a decade. Yeah, this guy's. Um, I mean, you may not may not always like their user interface, but boy, for sheer like rock solid driver and everything, they're the ones to they're the ones to beat. Yeah, and look, and, and look, and it's fantastic that they've actually maintained that. And uh, uh, you know, you could have a ten year old. Actually, I've got a 15-year-old RME interface here, Firewire One. They're still yep. they're still releasing drivers for it. It is a company that I highly respect, uh, not only for the quality of the interfaces. And again, people are going to argue about A to D and D to A's. You're never going to get consensus on that, obviously. Sure. But but like you said, George, the drivers and and the consistency and just maintaining. Uh, updating the drivers for even the older legacy interfaces. I mean, that's, you know, there's not many companies that do that. Yeah. Maybe Lynx. Lynx is another one off the top of my head. Really um, high-end. Sorry? No, it just says a lot about the, says a lot about the company when you can own a piece of gear 15 years old and get support yeah. and get a driver. Yeah. yeah. You know, that says a hell of a lot about the integrity of the company, who their, who their client base is, you know, that, that says a lot. Mm. Well, look, and uh, just in defence of some of the smaller, uh, not smaller, some of the other companies, they just they don't have the resources. I mean, the guys that write the drivers at RME, I mean, they're guns. You know, they're, they're, I can't remember the guy's name. There's two brothers that actually do it. Phenomenal. Um, but you need the resources to be able to deliver that. And, 
you know, the situation that we have at the moment um, uh, is that a lot of the manufacturers do not have the resources internally, so they they will commission a third party to write the driver uh, or they'll just get some off-the-shelf stuff. And, and um, um, that is very much the case for, you know, fill in the blank here, you know, and all of these guys that have USB 2 interfaces that have near identical performance, very mediocre, and um, it, it's the same driver, you know. It's exactly the same driver, the third-party driver. The performance has always been mid to mediocre, um, and uh, they'll, they'll actually change the window dressing on the control panel. But once you start doing some, you know, round-trip latency measurements and you see the near identical performance on the benchmarks, you know exactly what the driver is. And it's got a very, very similar fingerprint across the board, you know. Um, Are there any others um, up there on, you know, close to on par with RME in your mind? Not across the board, no. Not, not, across, yeah. not across the board. I mean, Focusrite uh, really upped their game on the USB 2 driver uh, over the last couple of years. Um, there, there was um, a lot of the uh, manufacturers that were using Firewire in the past were using a, um, a chipset and driver combination from a company called TC Applied. So there was companies like uh, Mackie, Focusrite, Personas, um, even M Audio. Echo. Uh, no, Echo had their own. But um, so these guys that were using the TC Applied driver, um, and this is, if you read my reports, I'm going, what? hang on, what's going on here? Why are these different brand manufacturers having exactly the same results across the board? And, you know, the, the light bulb went on and gone, hang on, they're using a third-party controller and driver. And so that's when my investigation started and I discovered who it was, TC Applied, and I actually... I remember sending an email um, uh, to TC Applied uh, directly and saying, look, you know, you, the driver's okay, but I, th- I think there's some room for improvement. And the proof in the pudding is that M-Audio have taken your driver and done a slight variation and amendment to it, and it's performing differently, uh, better. So I think you guys can improve it. And the first response was, we don't know what you talked about, driver's performing beautifully. And we're like, okay, right. Um Fast forward two or three years, they released the version four driver that was uh, almost on part of the RME firewire. So you know there are people listening, but it's just you know trying to get them, you know, get them on board and, and listening to what we actually require. Uh, but then again, what you know what what's the percentage of people that actually require those those uh, preferred lower latencies? You know, I don't I don't know. So I don't I'm not a figures a figures man. I don't know what the actual percentage is. All I know is that. Uh, the reaction that I get from the reports that I do is that there is a large number of people that do prefer working at those lower latencies. That's uh, a big marketing um, uh, focus rights. Claris interfaces. Claris, yeah. Thunderbolt is a yep. big part of their marketing message. Yep, yep. yep. And that it's low latency. Yep. And uh, there's, there's, um, there's uh, also a fellow that at the moment that uh, I heard you mention him a couple of times in the previous podcast, and I've got to be careful, that uh, has promised a, uh, an audio interface that was going to rewrite the, the record, uh, rewrite the uh, rule book pretty much, you know, the whole landscape on low latency performance, native performance. And uh, he's um, very, very vocal against anything to do with the DSP, and, um, but the product is, um, well, it's 18 months late. You know, I mean, we ha- we haven't seen it. We we, we keep hearing vaporware. It. Yeah, it is it is vaporware. Uh, well, it's not vaporware. I mean, I, I think I think the release of it is getting very very close. 
but, you know, he promised a lot. When I say he, um, he promised a lot. We haven't seen anything yet. And uh, the, the amount of hype that at the initial launch kind of reminded me of, um, of, of uh, remember that Sham Wah? Remember that guy that used to sell those those shammies? Sham Wow. <laughs> remember that guy? Sham Wow. You remember the Sham Wow guy? Yeah. Well, I think you might know who I'm talking about, but it's, it's someone that, that it has a marketing style very, very similar to that, that Sham Wow, and he's made a lot of promises, and I'm not seeing any of it just yet. So some of the low latency claims, and all of them happen just to be at 96, which is another little marketing ploy where they will say, you know, our interface has, uh, you know, this amount of millisecond round-trip latency at 96K. Well, that's great. Thank you uh, promoting it only at 96K. Again, and you could probably vouch for this as well, a lot of the people that work at 96, what do they deliver at, you know? Are they delivering at 96? I doubt it, you know? Rarely. No, it'd be 24.48. So uh, the whole 96 uh, marketing thing is always a little ploy because it, it, it basically halves your latency value, you know? Yes. Cool. Yeah. I was going to say, because yeah. I'm... We should say thank you very much, Vin, for joining us. Uh, if anybody's wondering about the noises in the background, that wind and sort of hashy noise, I should tell you that Vin does live in a very ha- large haunted yeah. castle that's been <laughs> occupied by aliens. <laughs> but that's for another Mate, that's show. A, you know, hey, you lived around here for many, many years, Andrew. You know what it's like. <laughs> You know, when the wind when the I wind do. blows through good old Viewbank and Eltham, mate, you know exactly what's going on. <laughs> That's right. Watch, Watch out, out for those the, the widow maker ghost gumps. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On hey, that look, and, and apologies if I actually did bore you guys to death, but um, you know, and I could have kept going. You know? <laughs> I know. I know you well. We might have to do we round two. Also, we, we need to plug your company because uh, I've had one of your computers for how long? Uh, have I had that 10 been? years or so, I think. It would be probably bordering on I that. Reckon, yeah, it, it must be. bordering on it. It would have to yeah, be about so, 10. I mean, yeah. So the company's yeah. uh, Avon Technology um, and um, uh, au is the web address. And if you want to check out my blog site, it's just uh, doorbench.com, D-A-W-B-E-N-C-H.com. Um, and you, you'll find um, the threads on the uh, low latency performance database at, at, at GearSlides, and it's actually pinned at the top. And, you know, there's, it's a big read, but it's um, if you're interested in uh, getting some, some good feedback on the actual delivered performance of um, uh, audio interfaces, um, it's... Um, uh, you know, worth the, worth a read, and I've also uh, Andrew has just finished developing that uh, round trip latency utility for OSX as well, because a lot of people are asking for it. So we've done that, and um, again, that's going to become the MythBuster now, because uh, a lot of the a lot of the Mac fraternity just didn't really think twice about. It. They just accepted the uh, the reported latencies, and no one ever bothered to actually check. Yes, now you no can. can. There you go. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wipe the tear, baby, from your eye Though it's hard to part, I know I'll be tickled to death to go Don't cry, don't sigh There's a silver lining in the sky Bonsoir, old thing, cheerio, chin-chin Na-poo-toodaloo, goodbye